Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan.com. Are you wondering why you shouldn't have debt? Do you have debt? What do you think about it? Well, joining me today is my friend and Bitcoin developer and advocate, Jimmy Song. We're talking about his newest book, Fiat Ruins Everything, as well as his thoughts on why you should have zero debt. Here's my chat with Jimmy. Jimmy, welcome back to the show, man. Well, thanks for having me again, Stefan. It's always a pleasure to be on your show and, you know, talking about the interesting stuff that we tend to get into. Yeah, fantastic. And of course, we're going to talk today about your book, Fiat Ruins Everything. So uh, let's just firstly, you know, give us a bit of a, you know, I like to start with why. Why did you write this book? Yeah, so I, I wrote this book for a different audience than all my other books. All my other books are trying to get people outside of Bitcoin into Bitcoin. So it might be programmers with programming Bitcoin. It might be, you know, people that are into human rights with the little Bitcoin book or Christians with thank God for Bitcoin or regulators and politicians with Bitcoin and the American dream. This one was different because I was aiming it squarely at Bitcoiners. I wanted uh, Bitcoiners to understand just how bad the fiat system is and uh, all the horrible things, uh, all, all the horrible incentives that it creates and things like that, uh, and give them sort of, um, I guess, uh, weapons for the bear market that I knew we were going to be in the middle of and we still are in the middle of, uh, and, you know, give them some hope, I guess, uh, to and some moral uh, backing uh, for the convictions that they have, and that's uh, that. That was the point. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very valid uh, as an approach because, as you said, you've already written books for non-Bitcoiners, and of course, there are so many people. Even as Bitcoiners, maybe sometimes they need some guidance in mm. understanding, right? Because. Okay, many of us are Bitcoiners and we understand that the fiat currency is, is flawed, obviously, and central mm-hmm. banking and the Fed, all of that, pretty, pretty much every Bitcoiner you mm. know, understands that. But they may mm. not understand the sheer extent to which fiat has sort of touched all aspects of our lives. And I think that's something that, you know, obviously I read the book because I gave a little, mm-hmm. just a short blurb for the front of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was definitely something that came out to me in my reading of the book. And of course, I, mm-hmm. you know, Obviously, we are sort of thinking along similar lines, so I kind of already agree with a lot of things. But, you know, for people who maybe are newer in their journey or maybe they've not studied the the deleterious impacts of fiat money, do you want to just uh, touch on a few of the, you know, hit a, hit a few of the highlights there? Yeah, so I, I organized the book to make sure that we hit sort of all the levels. So at the individual level, uh, you know, we don't have a good savings vehicle. So that has a lot of, uh, different consequences. If you don't have a savings vehicle, then, uh, they have to provide you some sort of debt facility so that you can, you can get into, uh, you, you can still acquire a lot of stuff, uh, even, even if you're not, uh, able to save long term for something like that. Um, at the company level, at the group level, um, a lot of, uh, you know, these corporations just get enormous as a result of feeding on, uh, free debt, essentially free money. Um, and at the nation state level, you get a surveillance state, you get a warfare state, you get 
all kinds of, uh, you know, social safety nets and, and things like that as a result of this access to free money. And of course, at the global level, you have the U.S. dominating everything because it has the global reserve currency and they are able to put more of it at will. So, um, you know, th- those are just sort of like the rough highlights. Uh, and we, uh, and I get into a lot more detail uh, about specific things within each of these layers. Uh, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we've had all kinds of degeneration. Um, I argue in the book that technologically speaking, we probably peaked around 1969 when man landed on the moon. Um, notice that we haven't been back since like 1972 or something like that. Uh, airline technology has more or less, uh, been stagnant since the late 60s. A lot of technologies actually haven't improved very much uh, and things have gotten worse. Uh, and we're, we're on the decline for a lot of things as a result of the infection of fiat money, which essentially ossifies any economy and, uh, and makes it more fragile and uh, vulnerable to going backwards, which we've been for quite some time now. Yeah, exactly. And I think Something that really sticks out to me is this notion that people are talking about now of a so-called competence crisis, right? And, in some, <laughs> and I'm sure you've seen this as well, mm-hmm. is that statism ruins a lot of things. And of course, fiat mm-hmm. currency has this centralizing effect. It makes the government bigger when obviously libertarians are you know, cheering at this mm-hmm. point because, yeah, that's, that's exactly the problem. It's that government has got involved and it's almost frozen some of these industries because of, it could mm-hmm. be because of regulation, it could be mm-hmm. because of other things, as you said, because it's corrupted all of us in some ways. And now mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to, you know, obviously adopt Bitcoin and try to undo some of this damage that's been done. So I'm curious if mm-hmm. you have anything you want to add on this competence crisis. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a there's a story that I read a while back about the original 747 by Boeing, and uh, from conception to actually having a physical Boeing plane, uh, seven seven forty seven plane that was operational, took something like eighteen months. It was ridiculously fast compared to now because. Uh, the seven forty seven Max, which is I think the latest version, took. 10 years of development. So, so what, what the heck happened? Why, why did it take 18 months back then and 10 years now? And the simple fact is we don't have the talented engineers that we did back when the 70, uh, the original 747 was created. Now, it's not because we've gotten stupider, although there, there's certainly some level of that as the education system emphasizes stuff like diversity, equity, and inclusion instead of learning how to, you know, uh, get the correct derivative for a function or something like that. And of course, that, that's going to affect it. But a lot of the very smart people have been going into the wrong industries. Uh, you know, the, the last 50 years, they've been going into investment banking or real estate or something else that's very financialized where they can make a lot of profit for doing a little, relatively little work. And so we don't get a lot of uh, good aerospace engineers because they're doing a Web3 startup or going to Wall Street or, you know, becoming a real estate mogul or something like that, because that that's where the incentives point. And that's uh, that's a large part of this competence crisis is that there the incentives just aren't there to create uh, these, uh, you know, wonderful things that we, we think should exist in society. Like think about nuclear, right? Like that. 
that technology has not advanced an iota since pretty much the 50s. We had, uh, you know, nuclear submarines, uh, back in the 50s. And the big innovation around nuclear submarines is that you didn't need to refuel them, right? <laughs> that, that you, you put it, uh, in a nuclear reactor into a submarine. Next thing you know, you don't have to refuel for 18 months. You just run off the fuel that's there. And th this is obviously very important for submarines because every time you refuel, you sort of like expose your position and you can't uh, get to very many places uh, if, if you had to refuel on something like gasoline or something like that. Uh, so this this was important technology and we, we were advancing and uh the the actual mechanics of the nuclear uh technology on a nuclear submarine eventually became nuclear power plants the the same you know dual water um you know heating up steam and turning a turbine that 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 basic concept was the only thing that we've developed with nuclear despite the fact that it has incredible energy density it has enormous potential for all kinds of applications we should have cars now that run on nuclear energy and we wouldn't have to like refuel them for 18 months at least like think of think of how much that would change the global economy no instead we've ossified on gasoline i mean maybe electric electric vehicles a little bit but you know they're objectively worse than what we could get with something like nuclear but we haven't advanced that at all because again those nuclear engineers of yesteryear have become, you know, investment bankers and, uh, you know, JavaScript developers and, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of rent-seeky jobs instead of the things that are actually useful. Fascinating. And of course, there is, you know, some talk now about SMRs, these small modular reactors, and mm. maybe it seems like the tide is slowly turning back in favor of nuclear, just a touch. Not massively, mm. but I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of that trend. I had an episode with the guy Nuclear Bitcoiner recently where we talked mm. a little bit about that. Um, but certainly your point is there. Um, I think maybe the, the, obviously I'm devil's advocating here, but let's say, um, they, let's say, uh, the argument is, oh, Jimmy, but, you know, that JavaScript developer can, developer can make a lot more money in his, uh, Web3 startup. Why shouldn't he go, uh, work in Web3 and not become a nuclear engineer? Yeah, and that, that's a perfectly rational thing to say. It, it's just that the system itself incentivizes, uh, going towards wherever there is money. And there hasn't been very much money going into nuclear, particularly because of the regulations around it, which honestly, a lot of fossil fuel companies have encouraged, you know, big oil and, uh, and, and stuff like that. Now, I, I love oil and all that. Uh, but, uh, in a sense that these companies have become static instead of progressing and trying to develop new stuff, they're much more concerned with protecting their turf. And that, that's kind of what, what's happened with that right. industry. The, the new money is coming into stuff like, uh, venture capital and, you know, all these, um, uh, you know, hedge funds and things like that. And the stuff that they favor are things that, you know, appreciate and price very quickly. They're, they're more concerned with getting a return very, very quickly. And certainly with a web three startup, you're going to get, you know, a return on the tokens you bought very quickly, uh, even if you don't really have a product. So in a sense, uh, the, the JavaScript developer working for a web three startup, they're, they're being rent seekers and, 
you know, it makes financial sense. And this is where we can talk about the incentives of a fiat system. But they're all off is what I'm saying. It, it, it should be going towards actual innovations like thorium reactors and, you know, stuff like that, that, that would advance the technology of nuclear significantly. But instead, we're getting useless Web3 startups that are creating monkey JPEGs or something. And that, that's supposed, that, that's not advancing anything at all. It is defrauding people. It's playing financial games is pushing paper around and you know it, it doesn't add anything to civilization and that's that's how civilization collapses yeah gotcha and so some of this ties and some of it is like more mm. bitcoin arguments against the fiat system mm. specifically and some of it is maybe more broader libertarian arguments right so it's this idea mm. that because this state the government exists that big businesses have to lobby that state because they want favorable regulation and then what that ends up doing is making an industry stagnate because these people are protecting themselves against future competition, right? So that's kind of a broader libertarian argument, although, of course, certainly this kind of Bitcoiner argument against fiat centralizing nature also applies, right? Um, so I guess, uh, again, the devil's advocate would be something like, oh, um, you know, look how much money is being spent on Web3 stuff. And are you just deny? Are you a free market denier, Jimmy? Are we free market deniers? <laughs> If it were a free market, then yeah, that, that, that would, <laughs> that argument would make sense, except it's, it's definitely not a free market. Not, yeah. not when you have a money printer that can, you know, spend money on whatever. Um, and you know, we, we have to realize that it's, it's not just the government that gets to print the money. It's, uh, a lot of, uh, banks, uh, of all types, uh, the commercial bond market, um, you know, the investment banking industry has all kinds of facilities to create money out of nothing, uh, often in ways that are absolutely shocking where you can get like a hundred X leverage on something. That's a lot of money being printed, even if it's temporary, uh, for the sake of these, uh, these bankers. Uh, but going, going back to, um, this idea that, uh, that we're, you know, the more money there is in something means that, you know, it's the market choosing it. It, it definitely isn't because it's not coming from anyone's savings. It's me, it's money being printed into existence. And that is very political. It's very dependent on who, uh, who's doing the printing, first of all. So you, you had prime trust that basically could, you know, create money out of nothing. Uh, and they, they ended up using it for bonds, which seemed safe, but ended up uh, crushing them as interest rates went up, and they they were, um, they you know they had to hold the bag or something like that, and they 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 lost at least on paper significant amounts of money from the money that they created out of nothing, and th this dynamic happens at a larger scale with VC money and so on, uh, where. Money that is printed in other areas go to these rich people who then invest in these VC funds as a general or as a limited partner. And that in turn goes to these favored industries, which, you know, honestly aren't moving anything. The VC incentives are very off where, you know, they want to make money quickly. And because of sort of the, um, the postmodern investing mentality that we've gotten into, uh, you know, it's about the price appreciation of equity rather than the dividends that it's paying, which it used to be on their sound money. So 
as a result, what you get are things that can be hyped quickly, uh, have a lot of retail mindshare. So something like a monkey JPEG actually gets more mindshare than a thorium reactor because you know, very few retail people are going to touch a thorium reactor, even if it were fully operational. That's that's not something people are too concerned about unless it happens to be in your backyard or something. Uh, so you you get incentives that go towards just pumping and dumping, which is essentially what a lot of these investors do. So a lot of money being there just proves that there's a lot of retail mindshare around a particular thing and not necessarily that there's actual innovation happening. Yeah, let me summarize a few points there. So I think mm. you, you made a lot of, you touched on a lot of interesting points there. Firstly, it's this notion that we were up until recently in a very low rates environment. All kinds mm. of crazy things are happening there because of this so-called chase for yield. And so mm. what people who normally would have just been in the stocks and bonds and typical mm. investments, now I don't endorse bonds, obviously that's funding the government, but <laughs> you know, just in general, mm. that's what people did. Because they were chasing for yield, they look for more risky things. One of those mm. more risky things is VC money, right? Is mm. VC investing mm. because it can have very high returns. And then mm. it's sort of because we're living in this overall fiat casino, it drives this kind of crazy incentive. Now, on the mm. other side, think about it like this. It's that if somebody wanted to invest in actual energy projects that were mm -hmm. not wind and solar, they were not getting privilege from the government, right? So the government would say, oh, we're going to privilege wind and solar because, again, this kind of woke ESG ideology is prioritizing the non-profitable, non-viable, non-reliable forms of energy like wind and solar, and they get a massive privilege from a regulatory standpoint and potentially even from a funding and credit standpoint. So if you are just trying to build coal, natural gas, or nuclear, you're at a massive disadvantage, and you're worried that the investment that you make into these things, whether it's coal, natural gas, you know, etc., nuclear, you're worried that 10 years down the line, they're gonna they're, the government is going to drop a ban hammer on you. And so that is just kind of, it just shows the sad state of the world that we are in today. And we, obviously, there's a lot of work being done that we need to fix this. But that's the, that's the state we're in today, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's an ossification of various things. And it's, it's incentivized by fiat money because, uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, most industries are, you know, basically five big companies and you get this centralizing force where you have the ability to use newly printed money to, for a massive advantage in your particular industry. So, if you are a certain size, you're going to have access to all kinds of loans, the commercial bond market and things like that, where money comes into existence for your benefit. And you can use this massive, massive advantage in so many ways. Uh, so, for example, you can hire the best people in a particular industry and pay them more than any other startup is willing to pay. Uh, so Google and Facebook have used this strategy to keep out competitors. Uh, you can also use scale to uh, underprice absolutely everybody else. Else. And Amazon and Walmart have used this strategy. Um, you can use the regulatory state to go lobby. Uh, if you're a small mom and pop shop, you have no budget to go and lobby Congress. But if you're a large player, then you can spread it over many more units. So you can afford lobbying, uh, which, which makes a lot more sense. And worst comes to worst, you could just go and straight up acquire smaller competitors. And they, these are all ways in which the big get bigger and the small get crushed. So you get 
four or five big players in every single industry. You can look at accounting. It's uh, four major firms in the United States. You can look at food. It's five major companies in the United States. You, you can look at airlines. It's three major companies in the United States. You could look at healthcare. It's, uh, it's six major insurers in the United States. It becomes giant companies that take control of everything. And it's, it's not exactly a monopoly, but it's maybe a duopoly or a triopoly or a quintopoly or something like that. And they're able to collude and use reg- the regulatory state to uh, put all sorts of barriers against competition. And you, you essentially get ossification across the board, across everything because of this advantage of fiat money that these companies have. And it's unfortunate, but that means that we get poorer because the products aren't getting better fast enough. Uh, even, and the bureaucratic uh, state is growing, uh, much faster than the rate of everything else. So we're getting stolen from and, uh, the evidence is in stuff that you, in the, in the way that life has changed over the last 30 years. When I was growing up, my mom stayed home. You know, how many people can say that now? Both parents work in a, a, a very large number of families. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, uh, my, my parents were able to buy a house, uh, you know, fairly easily without too much debt. Uh, you know, like, how many people can say that around the world? Real estate is just absolutely insane. So it's no wonder people can't have uh, large families because both parents are working. That puts a hard cap on the number of kids you're going to be able to have. And the real estate that you'd need in order to raise a large family is just not there. It's, or it, it costs too much. So we're getting poorer. Uh, as a result of all of this uh, ossification of all of the fiat money printing, all of the rent seeking that's happening. And, you know, we're, we're paying for it as a society in so many ways that are very obvious once you think about it, but it is not really generally recognized. Back to the show in a moment. With Bitcoin, it's not your keys, not your coins, and you need Bitcoin hardware that can help you do this. The cold card is my favorite Bitcoin hardware device, and you can get it over at coinkite.com. The guys at CoinKite are longtime Bitcoin entrepreneurs, and they wanted to focus on hardware security to make it easy for people to self-custody. The cold card is a very reliable and excellent tool. It's ultra secure. It has so many features. You don't have to be worried about things if you are a beginner because you can just directly plug it into your computer and use it just like most hardware devices. Though, of course, for intermediate and advanced users who want to use things like multi-sig or passphrases or CDXOR or have advanced uh, trick pins and BrickMe pin and Jurus pin, you can have those features also. You can get all of this over at coinkite.com. Use code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. And now back to the show with Jimmy. Right. There's so much regulation, so much bureaucracy, as you've pointed out. And I think in one of your talks, you pointed out how there's been this massive growth in, for example, in universities. There's so many more administrators now than there are actually <laughs> teaching staff, right? And I'm probably, I'm sure if you looked in other industries, you'd see the similar kinds of things where you just have all these people who are just colloquially sucking at the teat and mm-hmm. not really producing a lot of value. Now, one challenge that we are all faced with as Bitcoiners, and I think you were just tweeting this out on Twitter recently, it's this idea that you should just have zero debt. Now, mm. I'm with you. Like, I personally have zero debt also. But mm. let's talk about that. Like, what should a Bitcoiner or, you know, just a person who's think, trying to think about this do? Because mm. they may be facing a world of competition and, you know, just it may be certain difficulties. So, can you just make the high-level case? Why should you have zero debt? And, you know, mm. why is that a good idea to go for? 
Yeah, so I'll give you one, a practical argument and two, a moral argument. The, the practical argument is this. If you're, if you're in debt, um, you are essentially on leverage. Uh, so if you take out a mortgage, for example, and you put 20% down, you're getting 5x leverage. So you are five times more sensitive to the price of a house. Uh, and this is no different than, you know, an investment bank uh, doing a 100x FX trade or something like that. It's just different scales, obviously. You're, you're not taking out $30 billion in a leveraged uh, trade or something like that. You're, you're doing $500,000 or something, something to that effect. But it, it's the same concept. And the thing about leverage trading is that you can blow up real quick, right? If, uh, say, say your house, uh, say there's a real estate crash and, uh, and your home is underwater. Well, now, now you're in a lot of trouble. You've put a lot of equity into something that's not worth nothing. So there, there's, uh, from a practical perspective, a risk thing that, that happens with any kind of leverage. And all debt, if you think about it, is leverage in, in one direction or another. Now, it might be, you know, maybe, maybe you can do, you know, a lot less, uh, than 5x. Maybe you do 0.5x or something like that. And there's maybe an argument to be made, especially if the money that you're getting is not is coming from somebody's savings instead of printed into existence uh, but you know it, it's still leverage and I think it's uh, it's taking on undue risk that you don't need to be taking if you're if you can get out of debt if you uh, you know it, it's basically gambling is what I'm saying with, with debt and gambling always has risk and if you don't have to take that risk and if if there's all kinds of future events that might cause you to get completely destroyed you you try not to do that right like this this is like a rule of trading is that uh you know just don't blow up like survive that's that's like kind of rule number one so uh that that's one aspect uh of uh, of it the other aspect would be more moral which is that Every time money is printed into existence, it dilutes every saver. And unfortunately, all, all of, most of the debt that you have access to, including credit card debt, mortgage debt, um, you know, per car loans or student loans or whatever, all of that money is printed on your behalf. It's created when you take out a loan. So in a sense, Every time you take out a loan where money is printed from nothing, you are diluting every holder of the currency. Now, you might not think that's so bad because, you know, the, the people that own it are what, like banks or something. And, you know, oh, it's okay to steal from banks or whatever. Actually, like most rich people, like they, they hold enormous amounts of debt. The, everyone is up to their eyeballs in debt. Every major company is up to their eyeballs in debt and stuff. They might have a cash balance, but they also probably have a significant amount of debt because it is so freaking cheap. You had a zero interest rate environment for a, a long time and they took advantage of it, right? They're, they are uh, stealing just as much as everybody else. Uh, so when, when you when you are uh, actually getting a loan for five hundred thousand dollars for your mortgage, well, who are you actually stealing from? Well, the the people that are actually holding onto the currency. Um, this obviously includes a lot of people in the U.S. and so on, but it's also people in a lot of um, developing countries in the places where you have hyperinflation and so on. This, this is the place where they want cash the most.
most. Um, and those are, those are the people that are being diluted every time the money expands. So the orphan in North Korea that's buying, uh, you know, goods in the black market because the US dollar is the most desirable currency, they're getting diluted. And just to give you an idea of how real this can be during the pandemic, the black market prices in uh, North Korea doubled. Uh, so, you know, same bowl of rice, it could, it, it went from, you know, some amount to double the amount. And, and if you think about it, that is the money uh, that that was from all of the money printing that happened during COVID, and it's happening on a constant basis. This this is the monetary expansion that's happening uh, in the real world. So, morally speaking, you're kind of stealing from everybody when you get these giant loans. So, uh, you know that that would be the moral argument for why you shouldn't be taking out debt. Yeah. Okay. So. As I said, I have zero debt, but let me steal man for a, for a few um, different arguments and let's see what you think and how you would respond because there may be mm. listeners who are in that position. So, mm. uh, okay, so the, the let's say the lowest level of this argument. What about having to compete with the Joneses, right? What about, you know, the people who, you know, they've got this nice car or that guy, uh, uh, the guy living next to you, maybe he's got a nice suit and he goes to work in a nice suit or he's got a nice house, nice car, whatever. He wants to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, mm. What about that? Yeah, and, and you certainly can do that through debt, but that's a very high time preference uh, mentality. And that that's not going to get you very far in any sort of sound money economy. Uh, those are the people that get wrecked first. Um, and even even in fiat money, those are the people that end up declaring bankruptcy because they're trying to keep up with the Joneses instead of thinking about what's actually valuable to them. So, you know, debt as a way to fuel a lifestyle is going to not end very well for most people unless you're you happen to hit the lottery or something like that, which I, honestly, some people that that that's their out is, OK, maybe I can win the lottery or something um, that that's it, it's not going to end well, because if you're spending more than you earn, uh, you know, bankruptcy is kind of inevitable. So unless you can, you're up uh, leveling up your skills, maybe, maybe you're a doctor, you know, maybe, maybe you can make an argument there or something like that. And you're in med school and you haven't hit the big jackpot of your salary yet. I mean, uh, but you know, I, by and large, most people are not going to increase their salary that much. And the debt is going to continue to accumulate as you, as you do that. And again, that's, that's very risky and it, it prevents, um, your being able to save among other things. Yeah. And so, and it is also true that actually many high earning professionals, even doctors and lawyers, many of them, even once they are earning high levels, they are still living beyond their means, right? And this is, you mm -hmm. know, a common story, right? If you're a listener, talk to your doctor or lawyer friends, they'll probably tell you they've got colleagues who are doing <laughs> that, right? Um, but okay, so that would be another steel man. What about student debt and university uh, debt? Should that be, you know, should we consider that as a bad thing? Um, should people be shunning university or how, where, where are you on that? Yeah, I mean, again, that's uh, debt that's created out of, <laughs> out of nothing. It, it, it just comes into existence for your uh, for your education, I guess. Uh, I I don't think you should because it it it's uh, 
it's not just debt that's uh you know expanding the money supply it's debt that's not dischargeable in bankruptcy so it's a particularly pernicious form of debt and this is the other thing about that that i forgot to mention in the practical side um when you have that, you're pretty much tied down. You're, you're enslaved. And this is, this is, I think, what's triggering the discussion is the, is the tweet that I made about the level of debt that you have is the level of monetary enslavement that you're under. When you have debt, you really can't, you can't do anything else because you have to pay that off. Um, and certainly with student debt, that, that becomes sort of like the top of mind thing. Um, you know, I, I, I made the analogy that it's kind of like being a monetary zombie because when you're in debt, then the only thing that you care about is not being a zombie, right? Not having to pay this debt off. And in a sense, the, um, the entire, uh, you know, population of people with like uh enormous amounts of student debt that that's all they care about almost in uh in politics and so on so they they are they will vote for anything that will give them relief on that front uh rather than you know continue to try to pay this enormous debt off and that that's a very unfortunate situation because you get uh, you get politicians that will basically offer you free money and expanding the monetary supply is not a problem for them because it's, it's basically a cost that they're not bearing. Uh, but, but that, that would be the main thing is that you don't really want to tie yourself down, uh, to anything. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people get into that and then they, they can't get out of the situation that they're in, no matter how, unsatisfactory it may be um, and they can't live out their dreams but the actual things that they want uh, I mean what one of the things that I got to do and you know I got to visit you Stefan in Dubai uh, was travel the world with my family and being I, I was able to do that because I didn't have debt uh, because I wasn't tied down to anything I, I wasn't forced to work for a corporation and so on um, but if you have debt, that that is not an option, and the the choices that you have, the freedom that you have, uh, get severely limited. And unfortunately, student debt is probably one of the most pernicious forms of debt because it's not discharge dischargeable, and that means that. Ironically, uh, you know, they, they tell you that, you know, you can fulfill your dreams by going to college. Really, you're restricting your dreams by going to college and taking on student loans. Right. And I think in practice, there are many cheaper ways to learn some of those same skills, whether that's working for somebody else and learning from them in the master apprentice model or maybe online learning. There's courses and all kinds of things. Um, so another one people are probably thinking is, well, hang on, Jimmy, what about mortgages? Like, mm. do, you know, is it important that you own the house that you raise your family in or is it OK to just rent instead uh, if you can't afford that? You know, because that's also another area where, you know, we're starting to see this question of cost of living around the world. So, for example, I know there are stories in Sydney, back in Sydney, Australia, uh, I'm hearing stories about people who just simply cannot afford a place anywhere even near to where they work. And so mm-hmm. it's just becoming extremely unaffordable. What, what do you say to that? Should people, uh, how should people deal with mortgages and house, you know, the housing situation if they can't yeah, have debt? The, the unfortunate thing about uh, you know, housing right now is that it's conflated with the store of value premium that it already represents. So uh, most people don't have very many... Um, ways to save money and uh as you know there there's only really 
two other forms of uh, saving besides, uh, you know, something like Bitcoin and it's, uh, stocks and real estate. Uh, so real estate has this giant store value premium because so many people see it as a good way to save. Um, and that, that also means that, uh, houses are way more expensive because of that premium. Uh, you know, just looking at the prices from maybe even 30 years ago, it, it's absolutely ridiculous how much higher real estate has gotten. And if you compare it to pre 1971, then it's, uh, the, the difference is even starker. It's, it's just absolutely insane what houses cost versus, uh, your income. You know, compared to then and now used to be about four times, uh, your annual income. Now it's like eight times, something like that. So it, it's gotten much, much worse. Uh, so, you know, having to taking on debt to afford it. Um, I mean, I, I understand why people do it because real estate has been a decent store of value. But again, there's a lot of risk because there can be real estate crashes. And if you, don't uh if you don't survive it then you're back to zero you're you're going to get absolutely creamed uh on you know whatever equity that you've earned it might just you know fl- uh, you know disappear one you day might be because underwater, the market yeah. crashes uh so i i i don't think mortgages are necessarily that great uh i mean in special circumstances uh and you know assuming that uh, you know, the market reacts the same way it has with regard to real estate during uh, the monetary expansion phase. Maybe it's a good investment in that regard. Maybe you can win and maybe even a large number of times you can win. But there are enough times where you lose where this, this has to be a consideration. And thinking about just, um, you know, how it works, at least in the United States, yeah, the government essentially subsidizes all these mortgages. Uh, they're they're not at the natural rate of interest or whatever, uh, and they're they're unnaturally low for the amount of risk that uh, the bank is taking or the the actual creditors are taking. I mean, think about it. That's thirty years. The term is enormous. Uh, you know, you might you might change many careers in that time, and you might have very different uh, credit ratings during that time. Uh, the amount is also enormous. It's like many times your income. So, I mean, it's, it's very difficult. The, the market is very volatile. The, uh, you know, the interest rate isn't very high. So it's, it's definitely subsidized to a large degree. Um, but if the government keeps subsidizing high real estate prices, this, that, that's one of the triggers of hyperinflation. When you get, uh, things that are way too expensive, people can't afford it. Well, then wages have to keep up and they subsidize wages somehow or put like, uh, you know, a higher minimum wage or whatever. Like the, these are, these are the ways that you get the collapse of the currency. Now you might want that, but in a sense, every time you're doing that, you're still stealing from everybody else. And I think it's just more honest to, you know, be in a sound money system and not have to worry about all of these moral countries. Yeah, of course. I mean, certainly, I think most people would agree it's better to be in a sound money system. But maybe mm. the question would be, what about for people today, right? Like, mm. obviously, they may want to live in that world, but we still mm. live in the fiat system today. Mm. So, what would you say people should be doing today? Like, sh- would you say, basically, if you can't afford it outright, just rent it? 
Would yeah, I, I would say I would basically... say so. Or like, go go buy something you can't afford. I mean, there, or buy there's, further out, kind of thing. Yeah, further out or in a different city. I mean, there there are lots of really interesting cities uh, all over the world. It's just that uh, you know people tend to congregate around the places where a lot of people are hiring, and those those places tend to be where the giant corporations are, and those giant corporations are obviously subsidized by fiat money as well. So it's all kind of a weird shell game. I, I would encourage people to have a different lifestyle change. I think uh, be more of an entrepreneur wherever you're at, and it doesn't have to be like the typical VC startup where you're fattening yourself as far as fast as you can as a company to reach the billion dollar mark so you can get the advantages of being a large company. Instead, just like provide value somewhere in the economy. Doesn't have to be very big. You can have a coin laundry mat or something, you know, but something that provides value um, and is, you know, has a, a reasonable chance of success rather rather than, you know, going and doing this other stuff. Because uh, in a sense, you're you're feeding into the fiat system by, you know, uh, trying to get these properties in these very expensive places. And there's significantly more risk uh, involved in all of that. Gotcha. And so one other area related to this topic of mm. debt and so on that there may be people who consider themselves very fiscally savvy that maybe they think they know how to play the leverage casino or maybe to steel man it a little bit they may say well i believe fiat currency is on the way down i'm helping mm-hmm. advance the end of the fiat system by essentially going short fiat by you know having a loan denominated in fiat which they believe fiat is going to devalue faster than bitcoin is going to like they believe bitcoin is going to go up faster and Mm -hmm. obviously the fiat value is going to go down meaning in real terms the amount of the amount they're paying back is going down so what would you say to that people to those people let's call the the more fiscally savvy people who believe that you know they're going to win out of this and they're sort of in some sense helping end the fiat system yeah, I mean, just ask anyone at BitMEX. I mean, they, they, what what you're actually doing by doing that is uh, leveraging long on Bitcoin. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I like in in like conceptually speaking, but the but this is what happens to people that leverage is that you get wrecked in situations where you wouldn't otherwise get wrecked if you didn't take out leverage, and the, that that happened. Like Bitcoin might be going up over the long term, but it only takes one event to get you to zero. At that point, you're not benefiting at all. So again, this is a major risk. Uh, and there, there's a lot of people that leverage long and then you see a weird movement from the market and then bam, you're, you're at zero. This is the, this is the thing about gambling is that even if you have a positive expectation on, uh, on a particular trade, it only takes one move to zero for you to be completely out. And there's a reason why a lot of traders don't last that long. Even if you're a pretty good trader, it only takes you getting wrecked once for you to completely get destroyed. Uh, and that's, um, you know, that, that, that's kind of how this whole thing works. So if you're taking out loans, uh, maybe you're not doing a hundred X leverage on BitMEX or whatever. But if you are taking out loans, it is a form of leverage, right? Like if Bitcoin goes down sufficiently and you can't weather that storm, if you're not surviving, then you're going to get wrecked. 
And that that's, uh, from a very practical point of view, uh, a, a real existential risk. Now, maybe you're an amazing trader and there are sort of like the 1% that are extremely good at it and know how to do it. Um, I, I would still say that you're, you're essentially stealing from other people. Uh, not, not the people on the other side of the trade, although in some sense, you know, at least they're voluntary. So you're, you're not stealing from them. Uh, but the leverage that you are able to get, um, dilutes the currency and you are once again stealing from the North Korean orphan or the, guy in Nigeria that's just trying to get by, right? Like and have enough money to buy food for next week or whatever. I, I I don't think that's moral. And there are better ways to make money that actually provide value. And I think that's the direction that Bitcoin incentivizes us to. And not coincidentally, it's also very moral because, uh, you know, you're, you provide value. It's a voluntary trade. Back to the show in a moment. Pacific Bitcoin is coming up. And it's being put on by the lead sponsor of this show, Swan.com. Swan has pulled together an amazing roster of speakers, including Jimmy Song, actually. And so this is going to be an amazing, awe-inspiring, bright orange future that we are working towards. And Pacific Bitcoin Festival is a great way for you to partake in this. And it's a great opportunity to help bring some friends and family along, get them into Bitcoin, get them to learn about Bitcoin from a leading cast of speakers, people like Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert, Vijay Boyapati, Preston Pish, Greg Foss, Alex Gladstein, Corey Clipston, Lynn Alden, as well as myself and a cast of other people from the team at Swan. This is going to be an amazing event. I really don't want you to miss out on this if you are in or near the US. It's October 5th and 6th in LA at the Barker Hangar. There is a general ticket available and of course a VIP ticket available for those of you who want to be able to network with the speakers and attend a VIP special event. You can find out more and get your tickets at pacificbitcoin.com. Use code Levera for a discount on your tickets. Now, when it comes to using Bitcoin, I always use mempool.space when it comes to sending an on-chain transaction, or if I'm looking for a new Lightning Node partner to open a channel with, I like to use mempool.space. They can show you the mempool, the blockchain, they can they can show you second layer networks like the Lightning Network, and you can see which nodes are well connected, which nodes have high capacity, and that can be a really cool tool for you, whether you are running your own Lightning Node, whether you're just transacting on-chain, and of course, they are continually innovating. They have all kinds of new features. So for example, when you search a Bitcoin transaction on mempool.space, you can visualize the RBF history for that transaction. They also have a block template algorithm so you can do your own little block template audit. You can look at the mempool blocks and they're scrollable. There's just so many features you can find out more over at mempool.space. And now back to the show. Gotcha. And so I guess a few other areas where people could, I mean, there's kind of little disagreements people could have. They could mm. say, well, okay, BitMEX, you can get liquidated. If I go mm. and take out a loan in a fiat bank, they're not going to liquidate me. However, mm. I may be underwater on my loan. That's the risk that mm. they could potentially take, right? But mm. I think the broad, you've made the broad point though. So one other, I guess one other thing on this topic, what if somebody agrees, but they've already made the mistake? They're already mm. in debt now. What should they mm. do? You know, I'll try work work to get out of debt as soon as possible, and th this requires a lot more discipline and living, uh, you know, within your means and so on, and trying to save and and, and doing that. It, it's it's very hard because essentially what debt did in the past was bring consumption forward. Maybe you wanted that house, maybe you wanted that car, maybe you wanted something, uh, but I, I would submit to you that that's uh, that that is. Um, 
a character flaw in trying to bring consumption forward. That's uh, if you think about like your children, for example, if you just gave them a toy and told them, okay, well, you can pay me back over the next year by doing chores or something. That's, you know, they're going to feel like a slave. They're going to build up resentment and so on. But whereas if you tell them, okay, well, I'll pay you this much for doing X, Y, or Z. And, you know, you, when you save up enough money, then you can get that, uh, that toy. It's much better for their character. And I think that, that's what we have to realize is that we, we've had this very high time preference mentality of bringing consumption forward through debt. And, uh, and it's been bad for our character. And this is, this is the price we have to pay to get rid of that. Uh, those uh, sort of monetary sins, essentially, that, that we've committed in the past. Um, and, you know, it, in a sense, it'll be, make you a better person. I, I, I really do believe that getting out of that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of programs to help you in that regard. I know Dave Ramsey, even though he's very anti-Bitcoin, he, he helps a lot of people get out of that. I will point out that he's... Well, you know, once they're out of that, that he's, uh, he's not really made anyone really rich, uh, because he doesn't know about the other side of the equation saving, which is where Bitcoin can come in. Uh, but the debt side, he's very good at. And, uh, and I would encourage people that are in debt to get into some of these programs where, where they help you get out of debt and to change your mentality so that you're much more in, into saving and stuff. And instead of saving in the stupid stuff that he recommends, um, save in Bitcoin. It'll, 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 uh, for the long term, it's going to be a lot better. When it comes to fiat currency, part of what you talked about in the book also was around cultural impacts and, you know, things like how we interact with our family or how people even do dating today and like mm. the you know the marriage the way marriage works nowadays so do you want to expand a little bit on the cultural impacts and i think this is an area where a lot of people almost neglect or deny that aspect of course people like myself and safety and, and mm-hmm. yourself and others have been very vocal about this um, mm-hmm. but do you want to just spell out a little bit of the cultural impacts of fiat currency what what is it meant for us yeah uh, the ability to bring consumption forward honestly has meant that we are less dependent on the societal bonds that we used to have. So um, you can now sort of borrow from a faceless entity, right? And uh, and be indebted to them in monetary terms uh, by taking out loans of various kinds. So you can get the sweet card that you wanted and just, uh, you know, pay it over a long period of time. Now, what what's really pernicious about that is that it enslaves you to that lender and you you now have to pay this off or else you lose the car or you lose the house or whatever and so you you're under constant pressure and this is what i call monetary enslavement and that that's uh that's unfortunately the mentality that most people are in instead of thinking about new goods and services that you can bring to the market and making interesting things they're thinking about paying off debt and that's that's the mentality that most people are in rather than doing this other stuff um and that consumption uh immediate consumption also means that uh, you're, you're not as disciplined. You're, you're not, uh, and traditionally, if you wanted to bring consumption forward, you went to your family <laughs> and you said, Hey, can, can you lend me something, uh, so I can afford a house? And that relationship was what, uh, you know, sort of enforced that payback. 
and, and stuff like that. And you, you were way more grateful for the loan rather than sort of thinking it as a right or an entitlement. And that those bonds would get stronger, you know, as you, as you paid it off and stuff, unless you completely squelched on the loan, in which case you're, you'd be cut off from your family and all that other stuff. Um, which was honestly a very good deterrent. It, it, it made you, uh, want to satisfy your family, made you more connected to your family, made you want to make sure that they were happy and so on. Um, so family bonds were a lot closer because that's who you depended on. Now, because of fiat money, you're now dependent on banks and government and all these social services that they provide, quote unquote, for free. Really, they're stealing from everybody else. And, and that's meant that, uh, you know, you don't have as close a bond with other people. And, uh, and therefore you're not going to, uh, be dependent on your family. You're not going to have more children. Children were an asset, right? Under sound money, um, for obvious reasons, because they, uh, you know, whatever skills that they bring to the table, now it's useful for everybody else in the family. So like, I, I don't know how many of your podcast listeners have like a doctor in your family, right? But if you have a medical problem, you're calling that doctor, right? And saying, hey, like, I have this pain here. Do I need to worry? Stuff like that. Or, you know, I'm getting treatment for this. Is this normal or whatever? Uh, or if you have a lawyer in your family, you know, you call them up whenever you have like anything legal. Uh, if you have, uh, you know, real estate agent in your family, you call them up when you're thinking about buying a house. Uh, like, what, is this a good house? Is, is this not? Do I, do I need to know about something? That that's how it was, but like multiplied by 10 in any sort of like sound money economy, because you are, first of all, a lot closer. Uh, but, you know, each person was an asset to everybody else. And you get the network effects where, you know, the connections are the square of the number of actual people. Uh, that, that were very natural. It, like, think about hiring, you know, how hard that is if you have a business. Uh, but, you know, if you have a family, well, you can hire relatives. That's, that's so much easier. You, ha- you have this trust relationship. You, you know that they're mm. not going to go steal from you and they're going to try to protect your business because there's a connection other than employer employee. Uh, so all, all of those things used to be very normal where you had these tight bonds within families and you had clans and tribes and you had groups that were much more intimately connected uh, through trade, through relationships and, and things like that. But all of that has more or less weakened and been debased through fiat money because you have this alternate system where you can uh, you know, borrow essentially infinitely from, uh, from, you know, the government or from banks and things like that, uh, you know, yeah. in a variety of different ways, uh, that, that caused the disintegration of all of these wonderful relationships that made a large part of our human existence. Uh, and instead they're, they're now more or less debased and weakened to a point where it's almost unrecognizable in the West. Yeah. It's not uncontroversial to me that. The state and fiat currency have undermined the role for family and community and even, yeah, just like religion as well. That, mm-hmm. that These used to be alternate methods and ways by people by which people did things. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a social tie that they had in their community or with their family. And the state undermines that. And mm-hmm. it replaces because in a way there's a very insidious incentive to make you dependent mm-hmm. on the state version of something instead of the family or the social version of something. Mm-hmm. And that is also a very... Obviously, a bad trend. One other area I want to touch on before we finish up is around fiat morality. And you made a few 
let's say, predictions about crazy outcomes that are coming. And of course, you know, people could make the same things about what conservatives were saying maybe 20, 30 years ago about, let's say, gay marriage as mm-hmm. an example, right? Like that, that there would be kind of continual stepping stones or, you know, things happening. So as an example, you said, uh, you know, uh, hate speech, quote unquote, hate speech will be silenced or children will be seen as property of the state mm. or that, you know, we must all inject Pfizer's latest project, <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> or that uh, inflation is caused by anything other than corporate greed. And you mm. get in trouble if you say that. Mm. Um, so where do some of these, uh, quote unquote, big uh, predictions uh, come from? And uh, how long do you think until they come true? Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the incentives, their incentive is to always hide the money printing, always hide the fact that you're being stolen from and so on. So the corporate greed one is, uh, it, it is something that was obvious from the beginning. We're seeing that with Trudeau. He's blaming the grocery stores for charging too much money. Uh, I, I don't, it, like he's sort of pulling the wool over the eyes of anyone that's, actually seeing what's happening, right? They, they printed a whole crap ton of money. Uh, and uh, confusion is, uh, is the friend of every fiat politician because it gives them plausible deniability over the implicit taxation of inflation. And, uh, you know, in any explicit tax, you know, people just protest because you're literally taking my money. But with inflation, you're not literally taking my money. You are diluting my money <laughs> by creating more money. And so there, there's some level of plausible deniability given that people don't have enough economics education. And we certainly don't under this sort of indoctrinated uh, K to 12 educational industrial complex. And uh, as a result, they're able to get away with things like that. Uh, we're, we're seeing chants like, you know, um, we're coming for your children from the transgender movement. Uh, there are various officials already saying like, uh, you know, your, your children belong to us or something like that. Or, uh, you know, weird uh, laws getting passed in California where, you know, if you don't affirm uh, the gender choices of your six-year-old, they can get taken away from you and things like that. Um, it's It's been trending in this direction because in many ways, the state views the family bonds as... Uh, as an enemy of, uh, of the state bonds that they want you to have, the dependency that they want you to have, as you alluded to earlier. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of this is unfortunately coming true. Uh, and we, we are getting blamed for a lot of stuff that's really the state's fault. That's fiat money's fault. Um, and it's unfortunate, but uh, utterly, utterly predictable because these uh, these have been tried over and over again <laughs> in various societies uh, where the government wanted more control over your life. Excellent. Well, uh, as I said, I had a great time reading the book. I obviously wrote a small little blurb um, for it because obviously, you know, I, I think it's a great book. So, uh, Jimmy, tell people where they can get it. Uh, yeah, so you can get it at uh, Amazon. Uh, you can just search uh, Fiat Ruins Everything, uh, at least in the United States and Australia and se- several other English-speaking places. Um, the audiobook and uh, and the ebook are, are still in the works, so they they will be published in the next month or so. Um, if you want to pay Bitcoin for it, you can go to uh, bitcoinmagazine.com and click shop and they they have 
this book available for Bitcoin. Um, I'm also selling signed copies on fiatruinseverything.com. So you can go there and click uh, to get a signed copy from me. On you know, once once I get hardcovers, I'll also have that available there. Uh, I'm using Zap Private, by the way. Uh, so. Uh, those, those are some of the places that you can, you can get it. Uh, I'm trying to make it more available in different places. I'll certainly have it at Bitcoin Amsterdam. Uh, if you're, if you're going to be at that conference, uh, because Bitcoin Magazine is my publisher. So, um, you know, those are the many different ways. Fantastic. Well, Jimmy, it's been great to chat with you and, uh, hope to see you soon. Yeah. So what do you think of Jimmy's case against having debt? I'm curious to hear what listeners are thinking. And of course, you can find me over at stefanlevera.com. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to share it. And thanks. I'll see you in the Citadels.